You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Emma Allen from National University of Ireland, Galway. Her paper was entitled Without Your Majesty's Great Mercifulness and Favour, Rhetorical Patterns and Statements of Request Within Anglophone Women's Petitions in Tudor, Ireland. This paper is just basically going to provide a brief overview of some pertinent historical bits and then um, jump right into what my project is and what my preliminary findings are so far. The petition letter is a formal request for the granting of a specific suit and is typically utilized in times of great distress and need. As a result, petitions can provide significant insights into the lives of people during times of hardship or social and political upheaval. With the declaration of Henry VIII as the King of Ireland in 1541, Ireland's position changed from an English territory to an integrated part of the British Empire with full constitutional rights under the crown. After this, Ireland experienced a complicated cultural history involving the difficulties of intermingling Gaelic, Old English, and New English identities, resulting in a string of escalating political policies and rebellions. So this is just a map of Ireland in 1500 versus a map of Ireland in 1600. Um, if you look, you can see a lot of the um, earldoms or the um, old Irish families that used to exist in 1500 are now considered extinct. So that shows sort of the shift in the environment. Um, So this makes petition letters a particularly valuable resource for the study of Ireland because they reflect the turmoil created by an environment consistently in a position of social and political instability. So as a result, they can provide insights into the effects this had on Ireland's subjects and the methods they employed to navigate their situations. However... Despite being an invaluable resource, petition letters in Ireland have received relatively little academic attention, especially the petitions of women. So this is a problem because, as Lynn Magnuson states, examples of women's suitors' letters are more readily to be found than any other kind of women's correspondence in the 16th century. Recently, several scholars have recognized this reality and have worked to bring women's petitions into the academic conversation. Scholars such as Magnuson, James Daybell, Barbara Harris created a foundation for the theoretical exploration of Tudor women's letters, but they focus on women in England. The only scholars to discuss Irish women's petition writing in the 16th century are Vincent Carey and Marie-Louise Coulihan. However, their work on petitions has been but single chapters within a larger discussion of women's writing, and they analyze the singular women Grace O'Malley, Eleanor Fitzgerald, and Mabel Brown. Focusing only on these women results in a partial view of women's petition writing during the 16th century. It portrays women petitioners as anomalous instead of in the context of a larger emerging pattern. These petitionary patterns are what my research addresses. 
So due to the formal nature of the petition, the genre's structural conventions are predetermined for the writer, and the success of the letter was determined by the writer's skill in utilizing these conventions in the successful construction of persuasive arguments. If a petitioner wished to have their petition answered, they had to properly and persuasively use the epistolary structures expected by the state. Current scholarship has collectively identified several conventional epistolary requirements. Early modern petitions were expected to utilize predictable formulas for the structuring of formal address, structuring of arguments, language of supplication, and persuasive etiquette. However, this scholarship all centers on the rhetorical rules and their application from within the English context. This is a problem because, as Marie-Louise Coulihan argues, Irish women petitioners faced a unique set of challenges to getting their petitions addressed as a result of their political, linguistic, and geographical distance from the center of political and petitionary influence, the English court. The physical distance alone would have resulted in obvious logistical difficulties for petitioners, as personal interactions between petitioners and patrons was integral to the social culture of early modern England and Ireland. Despite the various disadvantages Irish petitioners faced, women in Ireland often overcame these limitations and demonstrated their ability to overcome issues of language, literacy, and distance to create persuasive pleas for themselves and their families. My research examines the petitions of Anglophone women from Ireland. Because of the comprehensive nature of my research, I have collected petitions from several archives. So my archives include the Body and Library's CART manuscripts, Hatfield House's Salisbury collection, and the National Archives State Papers. Within these collections, I have currently identified 54 individual women petitioners who have authored 131 petitions. Um, These women come from a range of social classes, from Lord Deputy's wives to merchants, and even two petitions from servants. The aim of my research is to identify how these women utilized accepted English rhetorical conventions, modified the strategies, and created uniquely Irish and gendered petitionary conventions. So one of the key aspects of any petition is the approach to the request, also known as the request statement. The request statement is typically a single sentence that states the specific goal of a petition and the persuasive supplicatory phrases utilized in the framing of this statement are central to the success of the petition. Every letter of petition I have found has a request statement. This statement can be found in several places within a petition but is typically found towards the end of the letter. Although very little research has been done on this specific aspect of a petitionary letter, Vocabulary of earnest entreaty was an expected epistolary approach to this statement. This expectation was laid out in early modern epistolary manuals, most notably those of Day and Erasmus. As a result, most male and female English petitions use language of self-abasement and beseeching within request statements. This also proves true within the Irish context, but with subtle deviations. There are three rhetorical phrases used in the request statements of Anglophone Irish women's petitions. The most common approach to framing the request statement is to begin with a variation of the phrase, humbly beseeching. Of the 117 petition letters I have examined, 38 of the letters have used a beseech statement alone, and a further 21 letters have used this approach in combination with another supplicatory phrase. 
This appears to be the most universally accepted approach to the request statement, as it appears consistently in petitions from 1547 through into the 1600s. This rhetorical convention is also utilized across social classes and types of petitions. In a letter to Walsingham from the old English Countess of Ormond, she states, she humbly beseeches your honor of your accustomed goodness to be a means that her servant receive payment due her husband for service. Native Irish townswoman Catherine traveled to England to find her son, and upon discovering that he had been slain, wrote to the Privy Council, requesting assistance with the returning back into Ireland. Her request statement begins, I humbly beseecheth your honors to have such commiseration on her poor case. New English lady Catherine Wallop wrote to Walsingham requesting his assistance in a land rights dispute. In the request statement, she stated, I humbly crave your honor to deal with Her Majesty for the obtaining of the said house called the White Friars. This was a house that they were um, disputing, and there are several letters kind of arguing who owns this house. Um, In perhaps the most evocative request statement utilizing the beseech strategy, New English Paleswoman Honora Dempsey petitioned the Lord Deputy of Ireland regarding the murder of her husband. She humbly beseeches your lordship to cause the said Bowens to be committed to prison for this matter. Um, As you can see in the letter, these are the people that she is blaming for the death of her husband, and she accuses them of killing her husband over the land. um, The people who killed him uh, took over the land after he died. Uh, So the fact that this strategy appears in the petition letters of women from all social classes and in petitions addressing a variety of subjects indicates that this is a well-established formula for request statements, and that Uh, The women in Ireland who used it were proficient in the rules for its use. The other primary approach frames the request statement around the supplicatory please phrase. This approach is employed in one of two ways, either as a question or as a statement. Elizabeth Dowdo's petition to Lord Burley exemplifies the questioning formula of the please phrase. In her petition, she is requesting that Burley pay her money due her late husband for his service as Chief Justice in Ireland. She frames her request statement by explaining that the premises tenderly considered, it may please your honorable good lordship to vouchsafe to cause the said money to be delivered out of such Her Majesty's treasure as sent into Ireland. When the statement is used with an it may or an if it preceding the please, it implies <coughs> that the power is all in the addressee's hands and that the petitioner's fate is uncertain until the person petitioned has made their decision. However, When this formula is used as a statement, the petitioner implies more power over the outcome. For example, in a petition by Lady Baltinglass to the Privy Council following the rebellion and execution of her husband, she requests she receive some return of her jointure. In the request statement, she states that it would please Her Majesty to grant her request. This declarative approach to the request leaves the recipient less ability to deny her request because Lady Baltinglass not only involves the queen directly in her request, but implies that the queen supports the request. The subtle use of would, as opposed to may, shifts the power into the petitioner's hands by implying that granting the request would benefit both the petitioner and the person being petitioned. The please rhetoric appears as a singular request approach in 22 petitions, but is used in conjunction with other phrases a further 21 times. Although this convention appears less frequently, 
Much like the besieged phrase, it does not appear to be limited to a specific social class or petitionary subject and appears in letters across the Tudor period. However, I have only identified the declarative form of the, the please phrase in letters after 1585 and in far fewer numbers than the more subservient language of the it may please request statements. The most rarely used rhetorical approach to Iris request statements is the addition of the conditional statement. A quarter of the petitions I have analyzed use the rhetoric of conditional language to create implied responsibility in the reader. In a petition, <laughs> conditional words, such as unless or otherwise, describe something that will or will not happen if the condition is not satisfied. This phrasing doesn't appear to have been used alone, but in addition to other request conventions. Conditional language may also have been a new 16th century addition to the request rhetoric, it, as its earliest identified appearance in Ireland is in Servant Catherine Stephenson's letter in 1573. This is something I need to do a little bit more research on to determine whether or not it is something that was new or is just something that I haven't found evidence of prior as a result to you know, my, the, the body of letters that I'm actually working with. So, um, in this letter, she requests that it may therefore please your majesty the poor and lamentable estate of your said subject pitifully considered, the said allowance and yearly revenue for the payment of your said subject, otherwise your said subject, shall live continually in most extreme poverty and punery. So in this letter, the use of the please rhetoric is seen in the beginning of the statement, but in the second half of the request, Stephenson deploys the conditional language through her use of otherwise. So bottom line. Um, the use of this word immediately forces responsibility upon the reader and implies that if the recipient denies her request, they are directly responsible for the resulting destitution. Now, instead of making an important impersonal decision about whether to grant a petition, the land or money she is requesting, the conditional language makes the decision more personal. This use of rhetoric subtly requires the recipient to more seriously consider the petition because it implies direct responsibility for the resulting condition of the petitioner. This strategy does not seem to be limited to a specific social relationship or status. Stephenson's letter is the most drastic example of social differences between writer and recipient, as she was a servant directly petitioning the queen. However, this strategy appears in letters of new and old English women, petitioners from all social classes, to the Privy Council, Lord Deputies, and directly to Queen Elizabeth. In addition... Conditional language was not always limited to the request statement. The women who chose to employ the conditional strategy often utilized this language in several locations within their petition. For example, Alice Fitzgerald's letter to Walsingham on May 2, 1583, exemplifies perhaps the most extensive use of this rhetorical strategy. Not only does she utilize this approach three times, but she employs the rhetoric two different ways. In the letter, Fitzgerald states, so as my grant as yet rather impoverish me than otherwise, unless your honor of your accustomed goodness either procure those words to be altered. So this is in relation to something that she was given. They were, she was given permission to land rights, and then she can't get it actually enacted because of some wording in there saying that she can't have any land that belongs to someone who has not been in trouble, basically. So she's trying to get them to change it so that she can actually get what she's been promised. Um, so several lines later... She says that it, I may presently pass the same, otherwise both myself and my little ones are utterly undone. So these examples show similar uses of conditional language as seen in Stephenson's letter. However, 
In the same letter, she also states that nothing should pass uh, until they have received new advertisement from your honors. That's the very, very end here. Here, Fitzgerald's use of this rhetorical move is subtly different, as until instead, as until instead of unless, has a different connotation. Unless requires that the reader take some responsibility for the outcome of the decision, but still leaves the decision in their power. On the other hand, until implies that the result of the suit is already decided. The reader is implied to have already agreed to the request, and the current choice is simply a question of when that request will be enacted. The addition of conditional language to the rhetorical approaches to the request statements provides women petitioners with a strategy that not only evokes a passive sympathy in the reader, but provides petitioners with a more proactive method of subtly prodding the letter's recipients into addressing their request. Conditional language pushes the reader past simple sympathy into an implied personal responsibility for the condition of the petitioner. Each letter is intentionally designed to elicit a sense of emotional, if not actual, responsibility for the plight of the petitioner. Not only does this act as a means of more personally connecting the petition to the reader, therefore providing a better chance of success, but it also acts as a subtle threat. It implies that the reader is responsible for the petitioner's state of existence and indicating that if their request is denied, they will be essentially forcing the petitioner into ruin and starvation. The petitioner is subtly threatening the reader with this possibility. This was an effective threat because in early modern English society, both the behavior and the conditions of Irish subjects directly reflected upon the honor and success of the administration. Therefore, women who could use strategies such as conditional language to evoke the duties and social responsibilities incumbent on governors and magistrates to assist and defend them. This is especially true of widows um, in in James Davidell research. Uh, Conditional language, as well as the language of beseeching and plea statements, are all rhetorical methods utilized within the request statements as a means of reminding the recipient of their responsibility to the culture of honor and by extension, their responsibility to grant the petitioner's request, if at all possible. As a result of the importance of connecting the petitioner's recipient with the responsibility of honor and the condition of the petitioner, the request statement is possibly the, most, the single most important sentence in a petition. It not only operates to specify that the petitioner is trying to obtain, but it also serves as a means of eliciting sympathy and forcing the proverbial ball into the recipient's hands and hopefully forcing them to make a favorable decision on their request. As a result, petitioners may be expected to integrate as many persuasive strategies as possible into their request statements. However, less than half of the letters identified had utilized more than one request statement strategy per letter. I have only identified a single petition that utilized all three request methods within her one surviving letter. Lady Mary Burke's petition to the Privy Council addresses money due her deceased husband, Tybalt Burke, for services rendered, and she is requesting she be paid the remaining funds. So this petition for payment also provides interesting information on the difficulties of receiving assistance within Ireland and the repercussions of the mini-rebellion. Although Lady Burke's letter is interesting for many reasons, it is perhaps most informative in both the length of the request statement and the use of persuasive rhetoric within the statement. Lady Mary Burke to the Privy Council, February 1st, 1581. So I provide you the whole letter here. But um, So right honorable, my humble duty unto your honors, most humble remembered, where it hath pleased her majesty by concordance passed in Ireland to allow unto me a certain sum of money for my late husband, Tybalt Burke and his service in killing of James. 
And albeit I am in continual suit for the receipt of it here in Ireland, I received as yet as several times, but money, <laughs> I'm not trying to figure out that money, and am yet besides my children's portions unpaid of the sum of, and the most part of the sum I received was spent in charges by my servants in suit of the rest and am like to sustain more charges if your honors do not take some good order for my satisfaction. So it is here that the uh, request statement begins. So I therefore do humbly beseech your honor to consider of my poor estate how not only my husband, but also am utterly beggared and impoverished by the rebels, how daily disposed, despoiled me and my poor tenants and left me out the value of a groat, whereby I am constrained to remain at Limerick for my safety to my great charges and hindrance. It may therefore please your lordship to take such order as my servant Nicholas Roach, the bearer hereof, may receive, as well as my said portion, as the portion appointed for my children, being 251 sterling <laughs> there in England. Otherwise, we are not like to come by it here in a long time, which I do most humbly beseech your honors of your custom clemency to consider. And so humbly take my leave from Limerick, the 1st of February, 1581. So in this letter, the request statement is presented in several parts. She begins her request by humbly beseeching uh, that her situation be considered and explains the situation her widowhood and the rebels have forced her into. She then moves on to the it may please rhetoric when she requests that her servant Roche be given the money due her. She then emphasizes the importance of the petition being addressed by using the conditional word otherwise to imply that if the Privy Council doesn't address the petition now, it may never get addressed. As a rather unnecessary reminder, she concludes her request statement with a further clause, again, humbly beseeching the council to consider her request. So these multiple strategy petitions only appear between the years of 1571 and 1589 in my current research. It might change. <laughs> now, there, may, there being no evidence of this strategy before 1571 could be reflective of the limited access to women's petitions from the early Tudor period, as opposed to any social factors that resulted in the increase of persuasive strategies. However, finding no evidence of the practice of combining several request strategies within the 23 letters that I have identified in the years between 1589 and 1603 implies that there is a specific reason for the shift in rhetorical approaches beyond the dearth of sources. So this is something that I really want to look into and see if it's something that appears in English letters or if it's something that I can... You know, if I expand my research database a little bit larger, if it does end up appearing, or if it is sort of a hard and fast rule that they disappear after that date, because that would be very interesting. Uh, so, in conclusion, this conspicuous absence of multiple rhetorical strategies following 1589 requires more research to explore the possible reasons for the appearance of the strategy for 20 years and its possible disappearance. It also needs to be explored whether this was a specifically female strategy or if it also was reflected in Irish men's petitions. And it also needs to be looked at as to whether or not this was a strategy that was something that Anna, um, secretaries would have been really familiar with and therefore were in charge of adding to the petition letters or if it was something that is a little bit more reflective of women's agency. So that is the main concern now in my next step of research is trying to figure out whether or not these strategies only appear in letters that are autographed or if they only appear in copies, which is a little bit problematic because a lot of the documents that I'm working with are copies of letters as opposed to original versions. Um, but we'll see what I can pull together. 
So these are all questions that I'm hoping to answer in the next step of my research. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.